The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Hello and welcome to the D-Day special here on the Wellness for Vets podcast coming to you from Limerick, Ireland. We have a special guest today who is a British military uh, historian, sort of a public relations uh, officer in, in the British Army. And um, what's, what's kind of exciting is when I was putting this thing together, right, everybody knows what happens with the U.S.'s role in the D-Day invasion. But we weren't there by ourselves, so I wanted to get another flavor for it. So I reached into my old NATO contacts, and I found our guest here today through through a mutual friend, Paul Barnes. We're going to call him Barney. He gave me permission to call him Barney. So uh, he's going to be joining us today, and he's going to be giving us the D-Day invasion from the U.K.'s perspective. Um, Barney, welcome to the show. Hi, James. So one of the things that I wanted to do, we're going to set this up for the audience, right? Like I said, everybody knows what happened on D-Day. They, the, the Allies land on Normandy, various beaches. We start pushing into the mainland, and that's that. But strategically, there was a lot of stuff that happened uh, before the U.S. even entered the war, which ultimately led up to D-Day. Um, all the stand-up, stand-down, stand-up, stand-down, bad weather before the invasion ever kicked off. Um, one of the things that we're going to talk about is the Battle of Dunkirk, uh, a, little, a little bit about an African campaign the UK was involved with, um, some of the stuff that was going on on the island on the, in the United Kingdom at the time, and then eventually the arrival of, of the Yanks, if you will, uh, and then the rest is history. Uh, so, Barney, where would you like to begin? You had mentioned uh, 1939. Yeah, so if we talk about sort of 1939, September 1939, uh, Germany invades Poland, and that draws France and the UK into, uh, into the war. Um, we sit in, in, in France for a fair old time. Uh, in fact, we sit in France from September all the way through to May, of 1940, just sitting in, 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 in France in the area between the French coast and the Ardennes. So that's where the British and French mobile army are sat. Most of the French army is sat inside the Maginot Line, looking across into Germany. They do do some minor incursions into German territory, but they don't make any real effort at it. In fact, during this time, Huge amounts of uh, electricity are still being sold to the Germans. So the, the French are still selling electricity to the Germans across the border. Um, they're still doing, there's still trade going on between France and Germany. Um, it's, it's not really much of a war. In fact, it's called the phony war um, by, by the British or the sitzkrieg because you're just sitting <laughs> instead of fighting. Um, so uh, that, that's what happens till May. Now, during that time, the Germans are really taking the lessons they've learned from Poland and bringing them across into France. Uh, they originally have a plan that looks like the invasion of France in 1914, uh, an enormous sort of cartwheel effect coming through Belgium and then down into France towards Paris. And uh, that is actually the plan for most of the time. But just before the invasion, uh, von Manstein, who is really Germany's Germany's kind of 
top military brain uh, just thinks about it and says, well, hang on, instead of attacking in that cartwheel and going towards the French and British mobile armies that are actually phenomenally strong, really good armour, highly mechanised, far more mechanised than the, than the German army, instead of doing that, let's find a gap. And what they do is they find the gap, and the gap is at a place called Sedan, which is just to the north end of the Maginot Line and at the south, southern part where the French are, but where the French are weakest. And they, they get in between the join between the, the fortifications and the field army, and they break through there. And that is Rommel, uh, who later becomes famous. He breaks through there, and he pushes on to the coast, effectively dividing the two armies. Now, what's also going on is, as well as them being divided in the south, there is a German army still coming through Belgium, pressing on using uh using what we call now blitzkrieg techniques but of course the germans didn't know them as blitzkrieg techniques they didn't even know that that was actually a sign of warfare that was it's been proven since that it was just seen as common sense and there wasn't really a doctrine of blitzkrieg it, it's us that have decided that it's a, a doctrine it was just the way that they did war they didn't actually understand that's what they were doing but in effect what, what you're doing is they're using air, artillery, uh, tanks, and infantry all together um, to, to subdue strong points, go round them, and, and tear into the soft underbelly, if you like, of, of the allied, uh, allied forces. Um, and it's done at a surprising rate. So they smash through Holland and Belgium in a matter of days. Uh, in fact, Belgium is finished within uh, about 14 days. And, you know, Belgium had held up for four years during the First World War and was smashed in 14 days in the second. Uh, just these new techniques. And also because the British and the French and the Belgians had put defence right on the back burner all the way through the 20s and 30s. We in Britain had had a thing called the 10-year rule, which was an assumption that there wouldn't be a major war for 10 years. So you don't need to do any defence spending really for 10 years because there isn't going to be a war. So what would be the point of that? And I mean... We all see this today. We see this as this is what our governments are up to today, saying there's no need to spend quite so much on defence because there's not going to be a war. Uh, and then, you know, these things happen, don't they? So this was the, uh, this, that was the outline of it. Um, what that meant was that the British were trapped in the north and, uh, and pushed back towards the coast with parts of the French army that were there, most of the rest of the French army and some British units had moved south in defense, of, in defense of Paris. But it became obvious that we were gonna have to lift those troops off those beaches. So on the 26th of May, 1940, so 80 years ago this week, um, the British made a decision to lift those troops off from Dunkirk um, in, in, a, in a Operation Dynamo. Um, and that operation eventually lifts 338,000 men off the beaches whilst being pressed by German armour um, for uh, in the space of nine days. Um, the, the problem there is that uh, people often point to the fact that the Germans stopped. Um, and why did the Germans stop? Why didn't the Germans push on? The Germans didn't push on for various reasons, political reasons. Believe it or not, there's, a, there's an argument going on in the German high command over who is in charge, the Nazis or the German army, and there's a big fight between them. Um, and Hitler kind of lays down that it's the Nazis are in, in charge by stopping the German army from advancing. But also, at a place called Arras, uh, on the 21st of uh, May, the British had really torn into the, uh, the Germans. Uh, Rommel got a real bloody nose. He tried to push around the south of the city of Arras, and British tanks had attacked him from the north. Um, and these British tanks, Matilda II tanks, are incredibly heavily armoured. Nothing the Germans could put at them could, uh, could get through the armour of those British tanks, except they, they turned high-velocity anti-aircraft guns on them. 88 millimeter anti-aircraft guns were turned into the ground roll, and we'd see the 88 become dominant through the whole of the war in the Western Desert, and then into uh, and then then into um, into Normandy. And of course, if you look at the armament of the Tiger One and the Tiger Two, it is that 88 millimeter anti-aircraft gun put inside a turret. 
um, that because they recognised that was the real power. Anyway, so um, obviously we all our troops come back. Not all. Some are still fighting on to the south and and try to be evacuated from Normandy. Uh, they're not, and uh, we lose an entire division, one of our best divisions, the Highland Division, 10,000 men, ends up surrendering to the Germans at a place called Saint-Valéry on the 12th of June. The French give up, effectively, on the 20, uh, 22nd of June, and the last British troops are evacuated from France on the 25th. Oddly, though, on the 24th and 25th, the British start to fight back. So what we see is that uh, commando raids, the commando force uh, that, that Churchill says he wants, which is soldiers lightly armed who can be dropped into Europe to cause mayhem, they start their first attacks on the 24th, uh, 25th of, uh, of June. Um, and he also raises... Uh, Hmm? These, uh, Sorry. Were these elements of the, the SOE or these actual... No, so this is command, what we call commando units. So okay. what we have today in our Royal Marines, we call the Royal Marine Commandos. But Churchill had an idea. Churchill had fought in uh, the Boer War in South Africa from 1899 to 1902. And the Boer farmers had things called commandos. So it's, it's a word that comes from Boer Dutch. Uh, so South African Dutch and what it means is people who who will fight lightly usually on horseback and they'll raid so they'll they'll just attack uh, a strong point and then they'll get back out quite quickly yeah. the idea is to keep the enemy on the back foot constantly it's a kind of keep him under pressure uh, the sort of thing that Lawrence of Arabia was getting up to in uh, in in Arabia in in the First World War. This is this is kind of in the Second World War. This is this is Churchill's brain thinking this through. Well, what that leaves us with is Britain. Uh, we in Britain have a thing called uh, standing alone, where Britain says it stands alone for the period uh, June 1940 until America enters. Well, until Russia enters the war in June 41 and America in December 41. But um, it, it, in reality, it's a strange sort of standing alone. Uh, we control the seas almost completely because of the size of the Royal Navy, and we have an overseas empire which takes into uh, which has Canada, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, India most of the African subcontinent. So yeah, you're standing alone, but you're standing alone with a third of the planet behind you. Uh, so it's kind of not quite how we would like to mythologize our role during that period. Um, not, not to get sidetracked, I was, uh, I was doing some reading or while well, I was going to the grocery store. Doesn't matter where I was at, but I was doing some reading. Um, because, you know, the Marines were, their role in World War II is in the Pacific. And we have a very close relationship with Australia. So I'm trying to see, like, okay, uh, what was Australia doing? And they were, if I'm not mistaken, were mostly uh, engaged in Europe. So, so Australia has, a, has an enormous role. As, as Australia had an enormous role in the First World War, it has an enormous role in the Second. So the first, once Italy, so this is where Italy comes in, Mussolini's Italy sees that the Britain is beaten, okay, beaten by the Germans, and believes that it's only a matter of weeks before the British capitulate to the Germans, or the Germans invade Britain. That really was never going to work. Um, Britain was far, far too uh, well prepared. It's the, the Royal Air Force was was an equal match for the Luftwaffe. It was never really going to happen. The Italians thought it was going to happen and decided that they would have an expedition from their part of Africa, Mussolini's African Empire, from Libya. He was going to try and invade Egypt. Um, he came across a man there um, called uh, Field Marshal Wavell who uh, is a very famous British general, who, uh, with his 40,000 men, captured over 120,000 Italian soldiers in a three-month campaign and drove them all the way back through Libya. But the troops he had fighting for him were Australians. So it was Empire troops in Australia, and obviously Empire, uh, Empire troops, Australian and New Zealand Empire troops, in uh, Papua New Guinea, and that area, and that's where they come into that fighting in the Far East. 
Okay. So, but the British are again in India and Burma, and so when the Japanese invade, this is why we, you know, we have such trouble. Um, so it, effectively, this this Africa campaign, Wavell smashes the Italians, <clears throat> gives them a real bloody nose, and uh, Hitler becomes so worried that Mussolini is going to be thrown out of Africa by the British that he sends uh, a small force called the Africa Corps under Erwin Rommel in uh, in forty one and sends them to attack the British. Um, the British would have been equal to the task had not Churchill decided to send half of the forces from there to Greece to try and shore up the Greek defence. The Greeks collapse, um, we lose huge numbers again, and we are really on the back foot until the arrival in the summer of <clears throat> the summer of 42 in the desert, uh, the arrival of Montgomery who has, he fought in that first campaign in, um, in, in, in Dunkirk, in the Dunkirk uh, Battle of France, and this is his second battle here. He had turned out to be, he was the commander of our third division, he turned out to be an exceptional divisional commander. His division withdrew in, in order and, and, and was evacuated in order, and it's his, it's his minute preparation which leads to the Battle of El Alamein, which, uh, which throws Rommel back. From that point onwards, the Germans are really on the back foot. Churchill says of Alamein that uh, it's, the end, it's the end of the beginning. Uh, so he understands that that is the start. So Britain in 1942, by the time the Americans arrive, um, has rationing. The German U-boats are taking no toll, although British... Um, signals intelligence is pretty good and we are able to find out where most of their submarines are operating at this stage breaking the enigma codes uh and but we have troops fighting in a large scale in north africa we have them fighting in burma because the japanese have invaded up through towards india we have british troops also uh in 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 the uk in defensive role um, and so we have hundreds of thousands of troops all over the world, but that really is the size of our army. Um, from 43 onwards, uh, the word goes out to plan Operation Neptune, what, what, what is more well-known today as Operation Overlord, and that is the planning for the Second Front. Uh, Churchill is not too keen on that idea. You've got to kind of understand Winston Churchill to understand why he's not so keen on it. So Churchill's experience during the First World War, he was the man who masterminded Gallipoli, the, the great failure at Gallipoli. And he was trying to do what his famous ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, had done, which was instead of attacking on a direct front, to attack um, on the flanks, on the weaker areas, what he called the soft underbelly. And the soft underbelly of Europe, as far as he was concerned, was Italy. Uh, that proved not to be true, but he did manage to convince the Americans when they entered the war that, first of all, they shouldn't fight, uh, shouldn't put most of the emphasis on the Pacific. They should put most of the emphasis on, um, on Europe. And then to convince them not to go across the Channel because it was too dangerous, uh, but to go up the soft underbelly up through Italy. Um, and that Italian campaign uh, starts in early 43 and then continues on all the way to the end of the war uh, and, and actually proves to be a diversion that the Allies should re could really have avoided. Um, but but uh, the reasoning is quite interesting. The reasoning is, is because of... Um, it's because of trying to avoid huge numbers of, of deaths and uh, and also the danger of trying to cross the channel in force, which we see on D-Day, you know, how close right. D-Day, even well, well prepared, comes to being an absolute failure, you know, very, very close run thing. So if we, if we kind of just take a moment to digest all of that, <clears throat> um, you know, uh, this is 2020, about three years ago, the movie Dunkirk came out. Most people yeah. by now probably had never even heard of Dunkirk, but like, hey, look, there's a new World War II movie out. Let's go see it. Uh, and, and it's a fascinating story. Um, but, it, but it paints a very bleak 
not not a not a picture of the capabilities just you know the 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 troops are stuck on across the channel they're getting hit with strafing runs and and all this stuff and they're they're trying to get yeah. back and as you mentioned you got troops scattered across three continents and uh it's just a lot of moving parts and and the entire war or world is at war um yeah and they're trying to get the so can you sort of take us into the mindset of of the troops of the day? I mean, like, you know, nowadays when when a war breaks out, you know, the guys are kind of motivated and they're like, oh, I'm going to go, go, you know, rock and roll. And hopefully it'll be over soon. I can come back and, you know, people will buy me beers or whatever. <laughs> but under those circumstances back then, like, what was the mindset? So it's it's pretty much similar. So the British Army that goes across, the British Expeditionary is forces it's called the BEF um, is professional and regular army and backed up by um, the regular reserve and also by what we call a territorial army which is like US National Guard um, forces so the whole point is it's 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 actually quite a professional army it's been in existence for a long time it is essentially the army that beat the Germans in 1918 um, it is highly mechanized far more mechanized than the Germans um, the equipment, its rifles, everything about it is a modern army, except it's quite small and um, tactically square. So it is still dealing with the tactics of 1918. It hasn't moved on. But the men are pretty confident. There is, when they go to France in 1939, 1940, they're absolutely confident that they can smash the Germans. As to the French, the French and the British together are really confident the Germans will get nowhere if they invade. Um, so the Germans then, uh, the Germans invade on the 10th of May, and very quickly it starts to, to go very badly wrong. The French have no communications, believe it or not, from the top to the bottom or side to side. So units find themselves fighting without orders, just generally fighting the Germans rather than having any strategic part. Uh, the British Army... Um, starts to withdraw because it, its flanks are um, threatened by the collapsing French, and that's why they move back to Dunkirk. For most of the soldiers, the feeling is probably a complete shock. Uh, this was not supposed to happen. The Germans are not this good, and in actual fact, and proven not to be. So we mentioned Arras before on the 21st of, of um, May. The Germans were given a real bloody nose by the British because when when it's a fair fight, even Stevens, the, the British will beat the Germans uh, because the armour, the mechanisation, you know, in a fair fight. But the problem is the Germans are using different tactics and different, um, different sorts of equipment, which leaves the British uh, shocked and falling back to the coast. After the evacuation, you get, you get terrible accounts of British soldiers on the boats back thinking that they're going to be uh, hated by the British people because they failed, um, but no such. You know, the British people saw Dunkirk as not a victory, but as a miracle, an actual miracle of of getting those troops off. And that was a message that said that Britain was going to win in the end. And so there is this attitude amongst the soldiers that um, this is bad, but they're going to come back. If you talk amongst the British population in 1939. Now, Britain lost uh, a, million, a million men in the First World War. And at the end of the 30s, there is a, a real pacifist movement. Most people agree with Neville Chamberlain and the appeasers of Hitler. But, you know, Hitler's had a, they say Germany's had a bum deal at the end of the First World War. We should give them a bit more room. Hitler is is the face of modernism, um, and we should give him a bit more uh, a bit more rope. They don't see the or, or they see the atrocities of, of amongst the Jews and other peoples. They see that as uh, they see that as a bit of a, a leveling up. They see that as a as a getting even with people who betrayed Germany. And even in Britain, people are sort of saying that some, uh, not all, but there is a there is a real amongst the civilian population there's a real until dunkirk i think there's a real uh feeling of should we be doing this you know why are we going to war over poland you know, what's that about why why are we doing this um it is uh, dunkirk galvanizes 
the British people. And it is from that point onwards, and because of Churchill's oratory and things, that, that people start to say, look, the Germans are all bad. This is absolutely dreadful. I mean, some of the stories that are coming back of the atrocities of German soldiers massacring British soldiers. So there's, there's two big massacres in northern France, which are not well known. A place called uh, Wormu, which is about 25 miles from Dunkirk. Uh, the members of the SS Totenkopf Division um, put British soldiers and one Frenchman, a couple of Frenchmen, into a barn and then threw grenades in the barn and machine gunned them uh, and uh, killed over 100 men in one of those. And also a place called Le Paradis, which is near Calais. They did the same again. Um, all SS doing this rather than the Wehrmacht, but this is, it's still, you know, people are really, this is not going to happen. The Germans are not going to get away with this. Um, and so British popular opinion starts to come round. Um, there isn't, though, the, the vast uh, volunteer force that Britain had seen in 1914 of millions of men deciding they wanted to join the army. There isn't that. And they have to bring in national service in 1939, which is conscription uh, to, to fill the ranks of the army. But then those soldiers start to go everywhere. So we have an enormous Navy that needs to be manned. Uh, we have the Air Force in Britain, but also we have the African campaign to, to, to man. <clears throat> and India, which, although India has an army of in excess of one million men in 1939, uh, most of those still need to be bolstered by British, uh, British regiments because Indian nationalism is starting to build and the Indians are starting to think about independence. And uh, I think there's a feeling that they can't entirely be trusted. And that's why there is a uh, feeding in of more men into India um, and then when the Japanese invade, it's for the defence of Burma and the defence of India as well. Um, so all, all told, their spirit, the British Army's spirit, was probably knocked by Dunkirk, but was pretty soon back in position. And then by the time we get to Montgomery Alamein in 42, in October 42, you start to see the British Army really starting to believe in itself again. Um, so that uh, by the time that we get to Normandy, they really do believe in themselves, even though that army that is ready to go and fight in Normandy is mainly of conscripts who've never fought anywhere but on exercises in the UK. Right. But they are supremely confident by that stage. Well, and then in between all that as well, um, I think Hitler pretty much abandoned his plans for, for a full-out assault on Britain, or at least postponed it, but then he uh, started directing them blitzkrieg strikes again into London. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I imagine during the Battle of Britain, obviously, that too much. No, no. It's interesting though because during the Battle of Britain, um, obviously, we (laughs) the Germans uh, struck uh, London by mistake. So Hitler's plan had always been, I mean, it was a clever idea. The idea for the Battle of Britain was that uh, as, as a prelude to invasion, that you'd have to destroy the air forces, uh, the British Air Force. So you'd try and def- destroy it on the ground. So they started to bomb by day and night the airfields. And uh, through pressure of downing aircraft, they would sort of do uh, two things at once. It, it Effectively, it would denude the power of the British they wouldn't be able to fight anymore. And then when the skies were dominated by the Luftwaffe, then the barges could travel across from um, Belgium and Holland and France and then invade the UK. Um, the problem was one night, and the absolute true story, one night a German bomber strayed north of one of the airfields on the outskirts of London and bombed London, but only with probably two or 3,000 pounds of bombs, so a couple of tons of bomb, which, as we know, is is not a great deal. Virtually no casualties. But what it does is it force um, forces Churchill to send British bombers to Germany, and they bomb Berlin in one night, and only about four or five of these bombers get through. But that incenses Hitler, 
and he makes a speech uh, in Berlin where he says, you know, they, they come across here with one or two thousand kilos of bomb and we will go and strike them with two and three and four million kilos of bombs. And so he turns his assault away. He almost takes his eye off the ball, turns his assault away from the airfields and starts to bomb London and Portsmouth and the larger cities in Britain. And by doing that, he fails because effectively he can't invade because those aircraft, those bombers are now being shot down out of the sky because they have no fighter escort. It can't reach there. So he makes that mistake, enormous mistake. Um, How does it affect the British people? Uh, The British people are blitzed and um, there's a famous quote where Churchill goes to the East End where the bombing's happening and uh, he's walking down the street and there's heaps of rubble and houses are collapsed and Churchill walks on the street with his famous V sign and he sees these these ladies who've had their houses destroyed and uh, he turns to them and says, we can take it. And uh, they told him where he could effing well take it. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, they really, they really, they, so they weren't, people were not, happy in any way but actually it solidified um solidified support for the war the germans weren't going to be allowed to get away with this and i think so this leads on i suppose to the whole idea of strategic bombing does it work or doesn't it and um and the essence is no it doesn't because you can't destroy certainly not then you can't destroy what you need to destroy you can you can carpet area bomb something but you can't accurately bomb anything and uh you know industrial production in britain goes through the roof immediately after the blitz because um industrial production is moved to safer places and and it becomes more efficient so uh yeah, it's not the the Germans think it's going to be the solution, and it turns out not to be. Right. Um, in terms of the mood of the people, it is really solidly put behind Churchill and the war, and people are determined to see it to an end. Um, so actually, his bombing was counterproductive in many ways, and and uh, the mood of the people and the mood of the army become solidified behind winning the war. Okay. Cool. Um, all right. So now, if you would, just take us through the uh, the introduction of the U.S. You know, in, into uh, okay. into the islands, and then uh, you know the the planning and build up, and you know, take us home, <laughs> take us to the okay. beach. Okay. So what happens then is that uh, uh, so immediately after uh, Pearl Harbor and. Germany declares war on the states, and uh, the states comes on the side of Britain. And there's this art, there's this discussion between Roosevelt and Churchill about you know where the emphasis is going to be, and they decide the Japanese can largely be left and, and contained. The bigger threat is Nazi Germany, and uh, that leads to large numbers of Air Force personnel coming over. First of all. Um, uh, and getting the reputation of being overpaid, oversexed, and over here is is what that is exactly uh, how it was seen. So, with British fighting man generally off in Africa uh, or in Burma, uh, what was happening was uh, lots of British ladies were forming relationships with with Americans when they came over, um, and so there was resentment from those who were left behind who weren't as glamorous you know uh, american soldiers arrived with with smart uniforms modern music uh, money uh, all the things that were short and also access to luxuries uh luxuries that, that the british hadn't seen for years uh nylon stockings which were in short supply cigarettes chocolate all those things and so there was a initially there was a kind of resentment and the the americans were alive to this so um there were various films put out in the early days saying you know when you go into a into an english pub try and uh try and not be um loud or try not to be controlling of a conversation because these people have been up against it for a long time and they're very and, and British people are a bit more conservative so try to try to behave yourself basically um, and this goes on uh, that sort of thing goes on for for quite some time um, and then in 43 
German, uh, American troops start to arrive en masse for the invasion. And all over the south of England, there are camps uh, set up. Uh, there's the imaginary American army, uh, which is Fortitude South and Fortitude North, which are on the east coast, which are sitting there busily transmitting uh, orders to each other, even though units don't exist, uh, rubber tanks, rubber aircraft, all those things to make the Nazis think that there's a big American army. And, and who do they put in charge of that pattern, in charge of the imaginary army? Because that will convince them that the, that's where the invasion will be. Meanwhile, down in the south and the southwest of England, you have, you know, uh, not far from here, so only 20 miles from here is where um, Easy Company were, were, were based um, very close to where I am now, and uh, this whole area is covered with uh, British, Canadian, and American forces. One of the things to, to remember is, of course, that Neptune is a British plan. Overlord is a British plan. So the planner who takes over in '43, having been withdrawn from Italy, is Montgomery, who is going to be the field commander for uh, Normandy for what we know as Overlord, because Overlord is going to be 6040, a British-American invasion. So uh, on the invasion day, um, Overlord is 60% of the troops and most of the um, naval support and a large, about 50-50 support of the Air Force, they're British and Canadian. Uh, so this is this is Monty's Monty's invasion, and uh, so it, it bears his plan. This is his his baby, if you like. Um, and you and I had talked and, a couple of days uh, ago. We had talked yeah. a couple of days ago that the the combined uh, British and, and Canadian forces was m- much more significant than the the U.S. participation. Yeah. So if you look at the number of beaches, there are three British invasion beaches and two US invasion beaches. Uh, the three British invasion beaches, Gold, Sword and Juno, um, they might seem odd names. They're actually named after fish. So it's Goldfish, Swordfish and Juno, which was the Canadian one, was originally going to be called Jelly. So it'd been Jellyfish. But the Canadians objected to that and it was changed to be Juno. So those are the three beaches, and they are at the end, at the um, eastern end of the long, uh, the base of the Carenton Peninsula. So what you've got there is those three. Now, why are they there? Well, they're there because the British are going to take Caen, which is the the capital of Normandy, the the big city. And um, they're going to use airborne forces to block, much as the Americans are using airborne forces to block the Germans from the beaches to allow Omaha and Utah to, ju- to join up, you know, in the area of San Mariglis. So this is going to be how they're going to do it. They're going to roll together. It's a hugely ambitious plan. Um, the original, Monty has beefed the plan up. Originally, there were only going to be one, one British army, and in, t- in time there are two. Um, and um, there are not, I think there were only going to be three or four U.S. divisions in total, and it, it turns into army groups by the, by the end of it. Um, so they invade, uh, you know, 6th of June comes, but this time has been coming for months. We've been ready and ready and ready to go. And then they are ready to go. Um, the, on sword and um, gold and Juno, um, the enemy is pretty subdued quite quickly in the beach area. But as we move towards Caen, it starts to become really hard. Um, Caen should have been taken on the first day, according to Montgomery's plan. And in actual fact, it doesn't get taken for uh, well over a month. Uh, Why is that? Uh, Because he overestimated uh, how well his troops were going to be able to fight inland. He underestimated the Germans. He thought they were weak conscript forces. Uh, and not the best that the Germans had. He knew that they were on the Eastern Front or further into France resting, but uh, he came up against really solid uh, solid defence. If you ever get the opportunity to, to visit the beaches, you'll find that uh, when, when you come off, when you come in from the sea, if you can imagine being at sea for 12 hours in a fairly choppy sea, you're feeling rotten, you're feeling seasick, and you land on that beach, 
and then you have to fight your way into a beach. You can imagine the exhaustion, the adrenaline, and then you've got to fight your way up a hill. And it's a, it's not a it's not a sharp hill. It's a long drawn out hill, and uh, German machine gun nests dug in all across that. It's no wonder the British couldn't make any headway towards Col on that first day. And of course, the Americans are having it even worse at Omaha. Um, in some ways, that's because Americans, the American army, decided it wasn't going to use the support of the 79th, uh, 79th Tank Division, the British 79th Tank Division, or what we call Hobart's Funnies. Uh, this is a guy called Percy Hobart, who's the brother-in-law, actually, of Montgomery. He designs a load of tanks which have flails on them, uh, the DD Shermans, which could float in. So, that, so the troops on Omaha Beach are landing with no tank support, um, whereas on on Gold Sword and Juno, they'd landed with tank support, which meant that um, <clears throat> the German positions could be subdued quite quickly by tanks. A tank firing its main armament into a bunker is going to do it a lot of good, uh, not a lot of good. Whereas a German dug in when all that all that America all that the Americans have got is the handheld bazooka. Um, and probably mortars, if they can get them off the beach, um, because they're being mown down uh, in hundreds by the German defenders. So there's a, there's a different emphasis as to why, if you look at the beaches, there's a different way of attacking a beach. The British have a certain way, the Americans have a certain way, and, and it's always going to be harder for the American forces to, to capture that beach, always going to be harder. Um, uh, so they do, um, but the relationship starts to break down at the very top pretty soon because Monty is a very tricky customer. Um, he's a very um, he's a very he's a, he's a character. Um, so he's a brilliant general, and he but he's very deliberate in what he does, and he learned to be deliberate during the uh, the First World War. It's deliberate it's that deliberate nature that wins at Alamein because he's not he's determined he's not going to outrun his logistics he's going to stay with his supplies and they're going to move forward slowly and destroy don't forget the British army is spread all over the world he only has the troops he's got so he has to use the material he's got the tanks and the armor the explosives he's got to use sheer force to fight his way inland in bite-sized chunks. So he's deliberately slow, but he's not losing men. And that's the most important thing. It means he'll be able to fight all the way to Berlin. Um, for America, it's got many, many men to, to process through. It can process through division after division after division. Churchill receives virtually no, uh, sorry, Monty receives virtually no extra forces than he starts with in Normandy all the way to uh, Lüneburg Heath in Germany. He gets no extra men. So he has to harbour his resources. The problem is, so he gets to Caen and finds that he can't take it and spends the next month bombing it. Now, the problem with Monty is this. Monty is an absolute egotist and he cannot, he cannot um, stomach being wrong. So what he does is he claims that this is his plan all along. It painfully is not his plan all along. He then, but he recognizes that the situation's changed and changes his plan. And actually, changing his plan is right. He is right to change his plan. And actually, the plan he then changes it to is a stroke of genius. But the problem is that he wouldn't have it. As far as he was concerned, this was always what he was going to do. But people knew that wasn't the case. And so he, the, uh, Eisenhower and Bradley start to lose confidence in Montgomery because they say this, he tells me this is his plan and I know it isn't. And this is a guy making it up on the hoof. And yes, he is making it up on the hoof, but what he's making up is a work of genius. What he then does is he slows up his attack into Caen and makes it a deliberate slow attack. And that sucks in all the German armor. So about 70% of all armor, German armor in Normandy is around Caen. And what that does is it leaves uh, Utah and Omaha Beach and the beachhead and up into, um, up into the Cherbourg Peninsula, it, it leaves that very weakly defended by 
lighter infantry troops in the main with some tanks, but lighter than you'll find around Gong. And that, that gives Patton, when he arrives, that chance to make that real sweep round um, into the top end of uh, Brittany and all the way back towards Falaise. Um, and that means that the German army is then wrapped up and, um, and surrounded and trying to get out of Normandy. The problem is, of course, that, that Monty can't then... He can only move deliberately, and that means the Falaise Gap doesn't get closed fully until mid-August, um, and a lot of Germans have escaped. But let's not forget, they still managed to capture 50,000 Germans in that pocket. Right. Um, it's, it's not the entire failure that people believe it to be, but this is where the relationship, though, starts to break down. I mean, shaky in Sicily between Patton and Monty, and it had been shaky in Italy between Patton and Monty, but then it really broke down um, in, in Normandy. And that's when Eisenhower takes direct control um, uh, and then fighting through, into, in, through France and then all, all the way through into Germany. So if we, if we look at the, the Normandy invasion, uh, you could essentially look at each beach as a, as a separate battle because everybody had yeah. to fight their way through. Um, one of the things, you know, if you were to look at, like, what, what made the Americans successful, I mean, I, I think one is just the, over, uh, the overwhelming amount of troops that just kept on coming. But it was also we had the Bangalore yeah. torpedo, which, you know, it, it really proved its value. Um, Probably the bazooka, not so much until they got inland because they still had to get off the beach. But but the Bangalore and then the yeah. leadership and people just saying, "Hey, we can't stay here." Um, you know, one one fellow I was yeah. talking to, you know, at one point they thought about getting off the beach and trying to get back to the ships. In which case, they would have been out in the open. Um, so somebody, yeah. you know, it just you know they had to reach down and grab hold and say, "Hey, we got to push forward." And then of course with the use of the yeah, no. and things like that. Perfect examples, you know. Um, um, both mainly on Omaha is 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 a matter of the most incredible leadership, the most incredible fighting um, prowess of those men who decide that they're not going to be, you know, they're, they're not going to give up and they are going to keep fighting. Um, and I think that's a wonder to anybody who who looks at it. Really, Omaha Beach and Utah, you know, it's it, it, it's it's similar, but Utah is not anything like as bad as Omaha in terms of in terms of um, what is uh, encountered by the Germans. Uh, and let's not forget, once those troops are off those beaches, they're never going to be knocked back into the sea. I mean, it, right. they are the material they have when the tanks start to arrive. I mean, the Sherman is <clears throat> the Sherman is an average tank. We used to call it, uh, in Britain, they have a, a, a lighter called the Ronson. And uh, the Ronson lights every time. That used, to be the, that used to be the tagline. And the Sherman used to be called the Ronson <laughs> because if it was hit, it would just blow up yeah. um, because it was not the greatest of tanks, um, especially not against, you know, at that time, the Tiger I and then the Tiger II starts to arrive. Um, those, those tanks are... Uh, you know, pretty much invincible at, at, except a very short range. And um, the British develop a, a version of the Sherman called the Firefly, which, uh, and the Canadians invent that as well, which has a 17-pounder gun on it, so bigger than an 88. Mm. Effectively, it's a tank destroyer, um, which is a brilliant piece of kit. But, you know, the, the weight of American material means that the, uh, the, the, the Germans are never going to stand up to that. They're never going to be able to hold back the manpower with all the equipment. Uh, and, you know, by the time you get to, um, you know, the Battle of the Bulge, when the Germans are going past American depots filled with everything from the States, you know, those soldiers are fighting, those Germans are fighting hard through there and realising how can we win against people who can afford to have Christmas cake sent across <laughs> from America? You know, they, we can't get Christmas cake from Germany 50 miles away. Right. But look what the Americans have. So there is that, that massive industrial way of war that the, the Germans just realize they just can't, uh, they can't defeat that. 
So what, what's, uh, once everybody breaks through the line, the beaches, you know, everybody's beaches is secured. Where does it go from there? Is everybody just divvied up their own uh, AO and different objectives? Uh, was, was there ever a consolidation again and, and a redeployment? So they, they consolidate uh, immediately after the capture of Falaise and the closure of the Falaise Gap. And, but the advance then is absolutely terrific in terms of speed. In, within a month, the British are in Brussels. So it's all the way across the French plain, um, advancing, you know, sometimes 25, 30 miles a day. The Germans are just collapsing after that. Paris is giving up as a free city. Uh, the, the, the French army would say they captured Paris. Um, there was the Germans just left it. <laughs> so it's quite easy to roll into a city when it's been left. Um, and the, the, the armies then more or less divide. The British head off into Belgium and clear up to um, clear clear up to the Dutch border by the beginning of September, and the Americans move the other way, clearing France all the way up to the German border, so that by September everyone is sitting almost on the borders of Germany within within the month of clearing out of Falaise. Um, what what they're really searching for, the British are searching for, is a port. So we have the Mulberry Harbours, one in the British sector, one at Utah Beach. The one at Utah Beach is destroyed completely by a storm. And so all supplies for all the armies are having to come in through that beach because all the other ports have been mined by the Germans and are unworkable until about, I think, uh, September, October, November of 1944. So what that means is all the supplies are having to be driven to those front lines. That means that as we, as the uh, as the Allies get right onto the borders of the German Reich, their assault power starts to weaken because they haven't got the fuel, the ammunition, or the food to sustain the thrust. Um, and this is where there has to be a decision about what you're going to do. Monty comes up with an idea uh, which leads to the Battle of Arnhem <coughs> and, and to that, that where the airdrop, the 82nd, the one we won, and the, and the British first as a way of getting into Germany in a single thrust. Uh, be, but then when that doesn't work, um, Eisenhower falls back on the idea of a broad front. That broad front is never going to be able to move very quickly because there aren't the ports. It's only when the ports are freed up uh, in Belgium um, and Holland that, or in Belgium, not in Holland, because Holland doesn't fall until 1945, but in Belgium, that there starts to be a bit more speed put into it. And largely, actually, that's down to the fact that the Russians have really got the Germans on the back foot by the back end of 44. The Germans in the back end of 44 are inside Germany um, and and the Germans are quite rightly probably trying to defend from the Russians more than they're defending from us because, you know, who would you rather surrender to? <laughs> uh, and so that's, uh, that's, that's kind of how it ends up in the back end of 44. When, when uh, Hitler decides to throw one more throw of the dice, the idea being to drive out of the Ardennes where he'd driven out of in 1940, split the Allies again, like he split the French and the British, uh, but split the Americans and the British, and um, and try and seize Antwerp, which was the port, uh, try and force the British to do Dunkirk too. Um, and that didn't work, obviously, because, first of all, um, although the Ardennes position was basically broken, the British were able to turn... 90 degrees and smash into the side of the German attack from the north. And Patton was able to turn in that wonderful 90 degree turn that he made from southern, from eastern France, sorry, straight into the side of the Germans, nip off the head um, and, and use overwhelming air superiority to destroy that, that final German throw of the dice in December, January 1945. And then from that point onwards, really, um, the writing's on the wall. The, the British and the Americans crossed the Rhine in March 
1945. And then within a month, uh, the British are all the way through. The, 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 the Americans are down into Bavaria. Uh, uh, but there's a conscious decision there not to, not to push the luck by pushing into the Russians too far. Right, right. Uh, although most of... Although obviously there are there are some Americans, Patton, for instance, who feels like he wants to just keep on going all the way to Moscow. <coughs> but um, so if, yeah, uh, it was a pretty much a, uh, so following following the, the beach landings. I mean, we got about roughly what nine, ten, ten more months of of yeah. battle, give or take. Um, being in the mindset of nineteen forty four. Did, did yeah. the people in uh, back in Britain did, did they know what was going on on the beaches of Normandy? Did did they uh, comprehend the significance of the troops getting on on and off the beach? Yes, so I think I think they did to a degree. Which was um, Brit- the the BBC was telling everyone that this was the invasion, but there was still the Germans were still saying no, there'll be another invasion in the Pas de Calais. So this is like a false invasion. Um, So people didn't know entirely that, but they knew putting yourself in their, in their, in their position. I mean, they started to be bombed from July by the V weapons, by the V ones and V twos. So the flying bombs, the cruise missiles and, and the ballistic missiles, um, started to bomb London and the southeast. In fact, one of the V1s landed uh, two miles from here um, in in July 1944. Um, so, and that's quite a way into 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 Britain. Um, so they were being bombarded. It was not entirely obvious that the Allies were going to win at this stage. Even when they advanced across and they captured Paris, it must have started to look like that was going to happen. Then Arnhem was a failure. Um, the Battle of the Bulge ha- started to happen in December, and it must have looked like the Germans were going to be able to potentially pull something off. Hitler had been incredibly lucky all the way through the war and been able to ride out these things. So I think for British people, where they probably thought there was not much chance that the Germans were going to uh, were going to lose, that we're going to win, they probably thought it would go on for longer. I think and. Uh, you know, if you think that in March, the Allies were just, the, the Western Allies were just entering Germany, even in March, most British people were probably thinking the war was going to be going on for, for months. And I think people probably only realised that the war was virtually won on the, uh, the 30th of April, when Hitler kills himself and... Um, and everyone realizes that it's probably the end. Um, and I think it probably gets realized then for the first time. And then it's a matter of only, you know, uh, the Germans surrendered to Montgomery um, in Denmark, northern Germany, and Holland on the 4th of May. So they must have realized somewhere between the 30th and the 4th of May that the war was going to be over. And then obviously it's another four days later. Uh, four or five days later before it's all over in in uh in the west um and then churchill on the on the ninth famously says you can allow yourselves a small period of rejoicing but the job isn't done now we turn our attention on the far east and and japan so uh, <coughs> yeah this, so this is going to be the 76th anniversary and uh you know it, most things are celebrated in fives. This just happens to be the first year that I'm doing this in it. So it's 76. Um, you know, I, uh, yeah. as I was, I was a Marine myself. So one of the things I find interesting is like the Marine Corps Memorial in Washington, DC, it's always a symbol of America, 4th of July, Memorial day, whatever yeah. you always see that. But I don't think there has been a single battle celebrated throughout American history from the Revolutionary War to the more recent wars, uh, yeah. more celebrated than the D-Day landings. And I'm wondering, what, what does D-Day mean to the British people today, 76 years later? Um, so <sighs> it was really well celebrated last year, enormously well celebrated last year. And I think people are really um of all the 
of all the things in the Second World War, probably D-Day is the thing that that British people kind of hang their hat on as being kind of the the, the biggest event. Um, w- w- that's possibly wrong, you know, for, for, for the British um, battles at Kohima and Imphal and those battles in Burma, where the British army throws the Japanese out. It's the only place where they're thrown physically out of mainland Asia by a land army is in Burma. Um, and those men of the 14th Army, the British 14th Army, are often called the Forgotten Army because um, everything's going on in, in, in uh, Normandy at, you know, at the same time. Um, what's interesting, I think, is that uh, we've got to remember the other, the other great uh, campaign that's going on in Europe, which is in Italy. Um, so Mark Clark, the US general, he lands, he captures Rome on the 5th of June, 1944. And, and he's, a, he's a terrible character, actually, Mark Clark. If you want to, if you want to study a guy, he's been real possessed. It's, it's Mark Clark. Um, he takes a huge number of journalists with him wherever he goes. And he makes speeches all the time. He really is not a very nice character. But he thinks he's got it sorted. He's not party. So he's not an overlord. He's not party to what's going on in Europe. So he times his, he times his capture of Rome to like the 5th of June and thinks, there you go, I will be the greatest leader in the world. When this, gets, when this story comes out on the 6th of June, everyone will think I'm a great soldier. And it's absolutely over, overplayed by D-Day. So, um, you know, the efforts of, of, of the American Corps, particularly the Texan division uh, around Monte Cassino, is, uh, is, is completely overplayed by D-Day. And D-Day is, for the Western Allies, it is the most important, I would say, battle. It, for the British, it, overlie, it overstretches even Alamein, which is an enormous battle for us. Um, it probably is for... The UK D-Day is probably it. Although I have to say that although the Second World War is important to the British, it is not the important war to the British. So to the British, the important war of the 20th century is the First World War. So if Britain loses 350,000 men in the Second World War, we lose a million in the First World War. There are only 50 villages in the UK where there is not somebody who was killed in the First World War. <laughs> so in my family, I have uh, three individuals who were killed in the Second World War, and I have seven in the First World War. So it just shows you the disparity. So for, for Britain, if you're thinking about, if, for a British person thinking about um, big battles, of the 20th century and what they mean to us, where America has D-Day and Iwo Jima, probably. Britain has uh, the Somme and Passchendaele. There are big, there are big battles. So the, the Somme, we lose uh, 20,000 dead in the morning, uh, 58,000 wounded in the morning. Um, yeah, so these that's real big numbers compared to you know our losses at D-Day, uh, thirteen thousand for the whole campaign. You know, maybe maybe if I get my act together, we can we can do this again at uh yeah, of course, man, yeah, or something. Um, yeah, you know, the the thing I'll leave with is uh with D-Day. You know, honestly, I spent twenty years in the military, and I I really don't even know what D-Day means. I don't know if it's decision day or what, but. It's basically the no, it's D, D Day means D, D Day just means day. Yeah. So D is for day, like H is for hour. It's, it's, it's yeah. what it is. It's it, it it it's just a day. But yeah, when you say D Day, there's only one thing that comes to mind, and and that's the Battle of Normandy. Um, that's that's right, Seamus. Yeah, yeah. Barney, this has been great. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Anytime, uh, great talking with you, and I look forward to doing it again sometime. Yeah, let's let's do it again. Find another subject. We'll talk about that. All right, sounds good. Thank you very much, Seamus.